Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Lakaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 298 with Eric Barker. Eric is one of my favorite kinds of guests because he's deeply vested, invested, interested. He's done the research, the studies, the real data behind the scenes to get to the truth of things. He explores that and also makes it fun and approachable at the same time. So you'll learn one, how alignment is a genuine key to success. Two, why valedictorians don't necessarily shape the world. And three, how to operate like a Navy SEAL. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F298. Now here's Eric's story. Eric Barker's humorous, practical blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, presents science-based answers and expert insight on how to be awesome at life. I dig. Over 320,000 people subscribe to his weekly newsletter and his content is syndicated by Time Magazine, The Week, and Business Insider. He's been featured in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Financial Times. Eric is also a sought-after speaker and interview subject and has given talks at MIT, Yale, Google, the United States Military Central Command, or CENTCOM, if you will, NASDAQ, and the Olympic Training Center. So thanks to Eric for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Eric. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, I got a real kick out of playing around and looking at your website. And the domain or URL is, if I'm saying it right, bacadesio.com, which has an interesting translation. Can you tell us the story here? Yeah, uh, basically, my last name means idiot in Japanese. <laughs> uh, Barker, basically, the Japanese syllabic system doesn't have R's, so Barker becomes Baka. Baka means idiot. So uh, when I was first starting the blog like nine years ago, um, and I you know, was doing it on a lark, I didn't even know what what I would, where this would end up going. Uh, I was just like, Hey, let's play with this. And so, uh, so my URL me, it basically, it's, it emphatically states that, uh, I am marker. It also says I'm an idiot because me introducing myself is, it, those are the same sentence. Me saying who, me introducing myself and me calling myself a moron are the same sentence in Japanese. So I have never had a Japanese. I've been to Tokyo three times. I've never had a Japanese person forget my name. <laughs> That's good. Well, it's fun and it shows some humility, self-effacingness, because really I would assert that uh, I don't think you're an idiot. I think you have some pretty insightful things to share. And you got the book and blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Can you orient us a little bit to what that's all about? Yeah, uh, basically, the the blog's kind of evolved over the years. But, uh, you know, basically, I wanted to look at, I wanted to get some real answers. You know, when I first created it, I was at a uh, big turning point in my life, and I wanted to get the best answers I could. So I started looking at uh, peer-reviewed scientific research uh, books, and I started interviewing experts and Basically, you know, I found that a lot of the questions, uh, there's this great William Gibson quote I love where he says that the, uh, he says the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed. And, <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's true with a lot of questions we have about life is that there's, there's a lot of research and information, good information, uh, about the questions we all ask, but they're in, you know, they're in dusty journals or they're locked in the ivory towers of universities. And, um, you know, I've tried to just get like good answers to, you know, how can we basically live a great life? So in terms of relationships, in terms of productivity, happiness, 
you know, all these kind of things. And, and just, you know, the internet is filled with, you know, so much kind of junk information or, or I, or, you know, unverifiable ideas that somebody came up with over lunch, you know, uh, to at least get something that has some backing to it. And then for the book, basically after, uh, after a number of years doing the blog, uh, the book is basically looking at the issue of success. And we all grow up with these maxims of success we hear, uh, you know, like nice guys finish last and mm. it's not what you know, it's who you know. Got to work hard. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we don't know where they came from. We don't know if they're true. We don't know if they used to be true, but they're not true anymore. And so basically I decided to play Mythbusters and each chapter of the book is one of those maxims axioms. And I go down the rabbit hole looking at the research, talking to the experts and basically giving each one of these their day in court, looking at both sides uh, of the issue and uh, and trying to make it tell some fun stories and have a good time along the way. That's cool. Now, when you say Mythbusters, I didn't see anywhere on your blog, maybe I missed it, in which you filled a pig's stomach with pop rocks and a carbonated beverage. Is that there somewhere or did I overlook that? I don't want to talk about my personal life, but um, the, no, that's not on the blog, but I do have an appointment later today. <laughs> oh, that's fun. I do. I would like you. All right. So, well, let's dig into some of these things. Now, I'm particularly interested from sort of a career and personal development vantage point. You say that much of what we know, quote unquote, if you didn't hear that, there was air quote all over that about success is totally wrong. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. I mean... Again, specifically, I, I I address these maxims, you know, where uh, they're they're very black and white. You know, nice guys finish last, and uh, and you know, it's it's not as clear cut at that as that. You know, there's there's many facets to the question, but most specifically, I would point to Adam Adam Grant, who's a professor at Wharton, and his research shows that nice guys do finish last. But they also finish first. When you look at the results from a number of different careers, uh, you find that the most altruistic people, uh, the results are bimodal. They are actually at the bottom and the top of success metrics. And if you think about it, that may sound confusing. It actually makes sense because we all know, you know, somebody who who's just a martyr who gets taken advantage of. They're just too nice. They don't look out for themselves. But we all also know somebody who is just awesome, supportive and giving and everybody loves them. Everybody feels in debt to them and everybody goes out of their way to to help this very giving altruistic person. So, you know, we've got these overly simplified black and white concepts of success and when you dig into it, you usually find that it's it's a little more nuanced than that and in some cases a lot more nuanced than that. Mhm. Mm okay. Well, I'd love it if you could unpack a couple of these maxims. So nice guys finish last. That's a great one to think through in sort of a career or work context. What are some others that leap to mind? One of the other things, you know, I, I talk about is uh you know the issue of uh you know uh that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And and when you look at the research in terms of extroverts and introverts, you know what you see is that across a number of metrics, you know, extroverts to do better. You know, they have bigger, they have bigger networks. They're more likely uh, in most situations to become leaders. Uh, they, they, they generally get, uh, you know, they generally make more money. And in fact, there's a, there's a very significant amount of research that shows they're happier. Um, however, what you see is that introverts have their own kind of superpower as well. And that is that introverts are far more likely to get better grades. Uh, a, a disproportionate number of PhD holders are introverts. A disproportionate number of top athletes 
are introverts. And what you're seeing there is basically that while extroverts derive enormous benefits from having big networks and knowing lots of people, introverts often take that time that they don't spend socializing and use it to become experts in the field. So rather than simply saying, uh, uh, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It depends on your career. You know, if you are in, you know, business development or sales or something, hey, being more extroverted, having a huge network can benefit you. But if you're something like a computer programmer or maybe even a blogger or an author, uh, being an introvert is beneficial because your skill is going to be more valuable in general than your network will be. Mm-hmm. And well, that's my excuse for having a poor quality podcast and writing on awesomeatyourjob.com is that I'm so extroverted. I can't be held responsible. <laughs> I'm just out and about socializing all the time, Eric. <laughs> and that's the key, the key meta point I make about success in the book is, is the idea that what is really critical is alignment, you know, is knowing, know thyself, the, the old classic maxim, knowing thyself and then picking the right pond, you know, basically really having solid information, not just theories, you know, who you are, what you're like, what you're good at, what are your signature strengths, what are your intensifiers, and then finding an environment that rewards those. The alignment between those is critical. And so like you're saying there, it's kind of like, if you know, hey, I'm extroverted, I'm really conscientious, and then say what roles, what jobs, what companies or institutions reward those, you know, that's the path to to success. Uh, And actually, what the research shows as well is that, you know, as opposed to doing what you love, very often what studies show is that when you do what you're good at, you actually grow to love it. So being finding out what you're good at and passionately devoting yourself to that actually ends up making you happier. So by starting with knowing yourself, aligning yourself with an environment that supports that, uh, you know, that's a really good path to success. So like you're saying there, it's like self-knowledge applied is really powerful. Oh, I like that a lot. And so when it comes to signature strengths, you know, we've talked with previously on the show about strength stuff with Lisa Cummings or Scott Barlow, but the word intensifier, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, this is a concept that was put together uh, uh, by Gotha Makunda at Harvard Business School. And Basically, uh, you know, signature strengths is an idea uh, that uh, most of the research is done by Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania. And signature strengths is, you know, not only obviously does it make you good at your job to to apply things you are you are naturally and uniquely good at, uh, but also makes you happier. There's tons of research showing that has a range of benefits when you use the unique skills you have. However, most of those are usually these these kind of generally good uh, things like, you know, if you're agreeable or if you're, if you're, uh, you know, if IQ or, you know, you've got positive things, things that are just universally well regarded. And that's where the concept of intensifiers comes in. And what Gotham Akunda realized is when looking at leaders, um, many leaders had many great leaders had qualities that were negative at the mean. In other words, on average, these qualities were considered a negative, but they had aligned themselves with a context where that quality actually became a positive. It became a superpower. So in other words, um, in general, if I said, if I, if I said you were argumentative, 
uh, most people would consider that an insult. In general, at the mean, argumentativeness is considered a negative quality. However, if you were to decide to become a litigator, uh, being argumentative, uh, you know, might be an essential part of your job and might might advance your career. Uh, some people might say you're stubborn. Okay, well, stubbornness, again, in your interpersonal relationships can be a huge negative, generally considered a bad quality. But if you're an entrepreneur, you kind of, you have to be stubborn. You're going to face rejection. You're going to face difficulty. Stubbornness might be almost indistinguishable from grit and persistence. So intensifiers are understanding the negative qualities, negative at the mean qualities you possess, and then finding that, hey, I'm stubborn, but I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm argumentative, but I'm a litigator. That I, even my negative qualities are being put to good use because of the career choices I've made. Awesome. Well said. I dig that. And it's very potent synthesis and distillation of this stuff. So I love it. I'm just going to keep going for it. You also unpack a little bit and explore why is it that valedictorians, in fact, rarely become millionaires? What's the story behind this one? Basically, uh, this was, this was uh, research by uh, Karen Arnold at Boston College. And, um, you know, what she found is that a million, I'm sorry, uh, valedictorians, they do well. You know, they, they do very well. They, they generally go on to prosperous careers. They often get graduate degrees uh, and they live, they live good lives. But, but in terms of going on to being the people that shape the world, lead the world, they very, very rarely do. And that is because of the nature of, of we, we think of valedictorian almost as, we give it this kind of halo effect where it just means you're Aww. awesome in general. Exactly. And, and it's not that, you know, what it is usually is, is a strong sign of, uh, of conscientiousness, the, the, the big factor, big five uh, personality trait of conscientiousness, which means you're good at following rules. And so people who are good at following rules, they show up on time, they do what they're told, you know, and those people do very well, you know, in school, in high school and college, because a big part, once you reach a certain minimum IQ threshold, you know, grades actually are not a very good measure of IQ. Standardized tests are a very good measure of IQ. Grades are actually a good measure of conscientiousness. Do you do what you're told? You play by the rules, show up on time and, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's. And so that means that these people who are conscientious get very good grades. However, the world is not, you know, just like schools. School has very clearly defined rules. The world uh, does not have, you know, very clearly defined rules. So when there's not a very strict playbook, you know, you check all these boxes and you get an A+, uh, this, the, the enormous success of, of the valedictorians starts to break down. Like I said, overall, they do very well. But they're not going to be the people who change the world because they're actually followers. They're people who do what they're told very well, but they're not the ones who generally go out and try and reinvent the playbook, who innovate, who change things. They usually want to check all the boxes, which means someone else has to create those boxes. And to do well in school also... Uh, generally means you have to be a generalist. You, you have to, if, even if you're passionate about math, you need to stop studying math to make sure you get an A in history and English. So it, it requires you to be a generalist. Whereas, as we all know, once you get into the workforce, 
you are generally rewarded for a singular skill set. If you, you know, if you're, if you are an amazing programmer and you don't know anything about history, Google is still going to hire you. Right. <laughs> they, they don't care about those other qualities. Uh, so again, you are actually penalized in high school and college for too singular a focus, yet what is often rewarded in the workplace is expertise in a singular focus. So once again, something that benefits uh, valedictorians in high school and college can be a big negative when they go out into the working world. Well, you know, it's really interesting, Eric, because, you know, I am a valedictorian and it's really connecting that conscientiousness element when I'm getting into some territory that is sort of ambiguous because like I also, one of my strengths is input. You know, I like to collect a lot of different perspectives from folks and then sort of synthesize that and say, you know, okay, you know, given all that I know from the experts and my research and the data, it really seems like this is the best course of action, but it gets really tricky for me when I'm doing something new and then I've got five totally different voices saying totally different things and I go, ah, well, shucks, now what? And I have, I found myself in my entrepreneurial journey getting a little bit stuck in those zones. It's like, well, I guess it's unclear. And maybe I will have the presence of mind to push through and find the audacity to chart a new course. But other times it just takes, you know, way longer than it should to blast past that ambiguity. I mean, you know, the thing about all of these, uh, these, you know, these, personality traits uh, like conscientiousness uh, is that, you know, much like much like the overall the overarching theory of success I have for the book, where it's knowing yourself and then picking the right pond. You know, it's always its interaction with the environment. You know, there there's not a singular this is always good and this is always bad. You know, if you were if you know, for somebody in many conscientiousness is a very powerful, you know, uh, personality trait in most spheres in terms of earnings, in terms of successful marriages, you know, conscientiousness being steady, predictable, consistent, you know, is very powerful. Yet we can all imagine situations where we, you know, perhaps in the arts, in media, you know, uh, in much more, you know, creative professions where being a little too stickler for the rules probably would not benefit you as much. So all of these traits, you know, are whether they're good or bad. And that's going back to the issue of signature strengths and intensifiers uh, depends on context. Mm -hmm. I'm with you there. And I also want to get your view here when we're exploring all this stuff in terms of where you fit best and maybe not so great a fit when it comes to the whole confidence game. What are your takes on from the research in terms of sort of bad advice for boosting your confidence versus the evidence-based advice? The issue with confidence, I mean, first and foremost, you know, the, the, it's a very tricky, <laughs> it's a, it's a tricky issue to discuss because they don't write a lot of books on, on reducing your confidence. <laughs> uh, most, most people don't say, oh, my confidence is way too high. How can I bring it down? It's, it's, <laughs> it's so one sided in terms of everybody wants to boost their confidence and 
and anything you see written on the subject is talking about increasing your confidence. You know, it's a little, it's a little one-sided. It's like only, it's like only, it's only one side of the, 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 the courtroom actually has an attorney arguing for it. Um, but basically it's interesting because there are strengths and weaknesses on both sides. And, and we're usually not aware of them. Cause like I said, cause it's often a one-sided conversation, uh, too much confidence, uh, you know, is a bad thing, you know, overconfidence is is not a compliment uh nor is you know narcissism and hubris uh so when people when people get too confident uh the research basically shows that a they don't listen to anybody you know they think they have all the answers to to a very unhealthy unproductive degree and also they become a jerk <laughs> they, they they just don't listen to anybody else and they don't they generally don't respect people and they're actually more likely to cheat and lie uh, but the benefits of confidence, obviously, uh, it makes us feel good confidence. Uh, nobody likes feeling uncertain. Uh, and also confidence has an enormous, it's undeniable that it has an enormous effect on how other people perceive you that, that, uh, there's one of the studies I cite in the book is that, uh, you know, given a choice between uh, a person with a great track record who doesn't seem very confident and a person with a mediocre track record who seems extremely confident, uh, study subjects picked confidence over a, a, a great track record. They actually picked just the way the person conveyed themselves, even when they were basically like picking a stock trader who, who lost money but seemed really confident versus somebody who consistently made money but didn't come off as confident. People choose confidence over expertise. Oh, wow. So you're saying we got multiple studies across multiple domains. Stock picking is one example where the majority of folks. No, 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 no. I was using stock picking as an example for clarity. But my, my point is, is that, that there's research showing that people will choose the confident speaker with an inferior track record uh, over the less confident speaker with the superior track record. Wow. And just in terms of like you're going to hire somebody for a role. And um, that is striking. I, wow. Yeah, I think we've all seen examples of this where, you know, hey, didn't have the greatest grades, but we really clicked in the interview where he really made an impression or, you know, she really just came across well and, you know, that kind of fog of war. Uh, and on the flip side, you know, less confidence obviously doesn't clearly doesn't make a very good impression uh, on people and doesn't make us feel good. However, uh, it helps us learn. We're far more open to new yes. ideas. You know, and we're far more likely to to listen, to explore possibilities and to grow when we don't think we have all the answers. So the problem is that uh, that, you know, there's benefits, there's strengths and weaknesses to both sides. Uh, you see some people succeed by by a form of double think, uh, which which there's no there's no system to uh, to to incorporate double think. But some people are, are great. You know, like if you think about the athletes who can be completely deferential to their coach, work hard in training. And then when they show up on game day, they are 110% sure that they're, they're going to do it. And if you can balance that, great. But in looking at the research, what I found actually was the best answer was that the entire confidence paradigm is actually problematic uh, at its core because it puts us on this, this constant up and down where you know we we often feel like we need to prove ourselves to support our self esteem, and what seemed to be a superior answer was uh, actually an ancient Buddhist concept, which has been scientifically validated by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas at Austin, called self compassion, 
where instead of building ourselves up uh, to this superhuman, ridiculous level uh, where we will inevitably, uh, inevitably fail, uh, basically to try and see the world as realistically as possible, but to be forgiving with yourself when you fail, to be very realistic, but to be very compassionate towards yourself. Actually, that allows you to see the world for what it is. You're not overconfidently deluded. But on the other hand, you're not, you know, you're not punishing yourself when you fail, uh, and you're open to new ideas because you're not, you're not being unrealistic. Self-compassion actually seemed to be a better paradigm than self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I like that. This reminds me of, and I don't know, maybe you could tell me if there's a scientific name for this concept, but it really seems related to this confidence matter. I've seen it in myself and in others in terms of, let's say you do something the first time and you're really concerned, like, okay, I've never done this before. I really got to make sure. I guess that's my conscientiousness. I really want to make sure that I nail it and I do it just right. I'm going to look very carefully at all of the instructions and the best practices and the research-based insights to just do a fantastically good job. And then I do that thing. I'm thinking about putting on a leadership seminar once. I did this. I was in my role as the chairperson and it went great. So good, 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 good stuff. And then the next year I did it again, but this time I had a completely different attitude or mindset, which was, oh yeah, we rocked this last year. This should be no problem. And so then I put in less effort and had less curiosity and less diligence associated with doing all the stuff and then actually had in some ways an inferior result in that event that put together. And I've seen this in other people. The term I've coined for it is second time syndrome. You're doing it the second time and through overconfidence or any number of factors, you do it worse than you did the first time, despite that experience would suggest we should have a superior outcome. So is there a name for that in science? I don't know if there's a name specifically uh, for that, but I mean, I, I think that basically what you're you're talking about is the development of overconfidence. Yeah, is that you know the your initial your initial success was attributable to a great amount of effort and diligence, uh, but then you know subsequently uh, you didn't do the great amount of effort and diligence. You 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 attributed it otherwise. Uh, and then without the, 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 the hard work and diligence, you didn't get the same result. There's actually a similar study that Dan Ariely did uh, that shows that, that we're prone to just that, just that sort of thinking, where basically they, they did a study where they gave people a test and they actually deliberately uh, made it easy to cheat. Oh, yeah. This one, huh? They made it easy to cheat on the test. And they didn't, they didn't let people know that they would be monitoring this, and they were able to monitor who, who cheated. Uh, but anyway, so they gave the test. Some people cheated. Some people didn't. Obviously, those who cheated did very well. And then they surveyed them after the fact, and they said to people, how do you think you would do on another test on this same subject matter. Mm -hmm. And the cheaters rated themselves as saying, oh, I think I would do great. And the what you're seeing here is that they succeeded because of cheating, <laughs> yet they, they, they somehow rationalized this into believing I'm actually good at this. 
you know, <laughs> and and that that's something that's that I think is common. It's kind of like your, you know, the 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 example you're you're positing, where you, you succeeded due to a lot of effort, diligence, and perhaps a fair amount of fear, um, mm-hmm. and and that really motivated you to work hard. And then we 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 have this natural human instinct to be like, oh, well, I must be a natural, <laughs> and, and then and then and then we don't do the hard work, and we find out that well, actually, it was the hard work that was responsible for the success. <laughs> mm, yes. Well, thank you. That was interesting. I had seen Netflix has a documentary that prominently features Dan Ariely. Dishonesty, I think, was something like oh, that. Oh, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah. And I love the scenes where it showed like the fake shredders that only shredded like the fringes of the answer sheets they yeah. were turning in. I thought that was a brilliant little experimental maneuver there. It's like, it sure looks and sounds like that thing has got shredded, but it wasn't. <laughs> I just thought that was awesome. (laughs) Cool. Maybe the last question, perhaps. You unpack a bit of the secret ingredient, how Navy SEALs find that grit. Can you share what's the master key to this? Navy SEALs basically, I mean, go through BUDS, which is uh, basic underwater demolition and training. That's the vetting process for, for SEALs. And uh, after the tragedy of 9-11, uh, the, the U.S. military wanted more special operations troops like SEALs. But obviously, they, they didn't want to, to lower the standards because that would defeat the purpose. So they had to commission a study basically to find what was it that separated psychologically uh, those who got through the training versus, versus those who didn't because, frankly, they didn't know. And so uh, one of the, the key four things that, uh, that really kept them going uh, was positive self-talk, was basically we all have this voice in our head. We say hundreds of words to ourselves every minute. And those, if those voices are positive, we tend to persist. And if they're negative, we, you know, we, we tend to quit. And this aligns perfectly because uh, I point to that, uh, the Navy SEALs as an, as an example, but the underlying research that, that basically lines up with it pretty well, uh, done by Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania, uh, is that you know, optimism is probably the, the strongest element you know, of uh, grit and resilience, you know, as we know it, having an optimistic attitude. Uh, and it only and it makes intuitive sense. You know, if, if you think things are going to work out, uh, you know, if you, if you think you're going to win uh, at the roulette table, you keep playing. And uh-huh. if you think you're not, then you stop playing. And so if we believe optimistically things are going to go well, we persist. Even when things are tough, even when it's difficult, we keep going. And and that basically optimism and an optimistic attitude is probably the strongest predictor of whether people will be resilient through uh, through difficult challenges. And I'd like to get a little bit more precise when we talk about defining optimism. I'm thinking about Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, in which there's a bit of a distinction as opposed to, you know, hey, we're going to be rescued and saved out of this concentration camp, you know, next week, next month, you know, and then they're disappointed and it falls apart. Versus when you say optimism, it sounds like you're maybe in the ballpark of self-efficacy in terms of I have a conviction that I will be successful in this endeavor. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're making a, a really salient distinction, which is lying to yourself <laughs> yeah. is is not the, the the path here. Merely telling yourself pretty lies uh, <laughs> is not you know the the path here. Tomorrow will be an easier day of buds. <laughs> Bad move. 
Yes. Uh, and the and the big thing that, you know, the, the distinction that Seligman makes uh, is basically he says what separates, you know, an optimistic attitude from a pessimistic attitude. Uh, he refers to them as the three P's, which is uh, seeing things that are positive as personal, uh, pervasive and persistent. In other words, optimists and good things happen. They see them as personal. They see them. So uh, th- I was responsible for this. They see it as persistent. This good thing will continue. And they see it as pervasive. This good thing is going to affect many areas of my life. However, when people uh, have a pessimistic attitude, it is because they see negative things as personal, persistent, and pervasive. And what you really need to do is kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy style approach, which is we all have moments where we get pessimistic and we say, oh, it's all my fault. This problem is going to, it's going to keep happening and it's going to affect, it's going to affect every area of my life. And, and to, to actually question those thoughts, cause we'll just accept those thoughts because they're in our head. They must be true to actually stop and question them and to say, is this all, this is really all my fault. No, it's not all my fault. This is going to go on forever. No, it's not going to go on forever. This is going to affect every area of my life. No, not every. To, to basically really question it. So instead of saying just Pollyanna-ish, unrealistic you know, lies to make ourselves feel better, if you look at those negatives, usually the negatives, we exaggerate those. And to make those more realistic allows us to be more optimistic because we can say, no, 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 no. The reason I'm so upset, the reason I want to quit is because I'm exaggerating the negatives here and I'm not looking at the positives. So to be more objective and not to to be overly dramatic in either direction. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you. Well, Eric, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear some of your favorite things? No, nothing, nothing specific. We can, we can move on to the, the next phase. All right. Well, how about you share with us a favorite quote, something that inspires you? One of my favorite quotes is the, the William Gibson quote I mentioned where he says, he, he said that, uh, you know, the, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think that what's really critical, you know, there is just having a little bit of resourcefulness uh, in terms of this resourcefulness, I think is a, uh, a quality that I really appreciate that people don't that people don't uh, don't uh, don't don't give enough attention to. Uh, a lot of the answers are out there, but usually we just shrug our shoulders and we stop. So to realize that usually, if you're asking a question, someone else has asked it, and if you spend a little bit of time, you you might be able to get the answer or or get yourself closer to it. And I mean, I, I think that's something really powerful to think about. Mm, excellent, thank you. And how about a favorite study? It seems you've gotten enchanted by so many. Does one really stick with you? I guess something that I read recently that I really thought was uh, really, really moved me was the idea that uh, if you try to be happier uh, and you live in the United States or the UK and you make a concerted, deliberate effort to be happier, you will fail. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and the reason for that, however, if you live in Russia, China, Japan, you will succeed. And the reason for that is that so, so much of what makes us happy is relationships with other people. Uh, yet the cultures of the United States and the United Kingdom are very individualistic cultures, meaning that usually when we try to make ourselves happier, we focus on ourselves, be yourself, do your own thing. Uh, and so the efforts we make are usually in the wrong direction. If we live in the US and the UK, uh, we need to think socially. We need to think more like collectivist countries. Uh, so, uh, so ironically, uh, when people 
do the usual things to try and make themselves happier in the U.S. and U.K., they fail spectacularly. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't be happier. It just means uh, we need to think a little bit differently than, than, our, than the concepts that our, our culture usually promotes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? One that I, I read uh, recently that I thought was uh, pretty, pretty spectacular uh, was um, uh, I definitely like uh, Mark Manson's uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I will, I'll not use the full word there, but uh, it is for people who are curious about Buddhism and a lot of the uh, happiness concepts that have come out of that. It is a very uh, accessible way to to look at it. And one of the main ideas uh, Mark describes in there, uh, which I found useful, is uh, is basically he he says for people to look through the lens of the idea of of what challenges, what what pain are you comfortable with? You know, because some of us, there are difficulties that we don't like to have to deal with. And there are other difficulties that that we're we're some people are more comfortable with failure. But they're they have a short attention span and they're not good with persistence. Uh, so they would they'll be happy to try lots of things and if they fail at ninety percent of them but succeed at ten, they're good. Other people are really good at persistence, uh, but they hate failure. So you know, so drilling down, grinding away for years is an option for them to to realize what kind of suffering are you comfortable with. Uh, as opposed to saying, what do I want? What's my big grand dream? Well, it's going to take a lot of work. If it's a big grand dream, it's going to take a lot of work to get there. And then to ask yourself, okay, what challenges, what suffering am I comfortable with? Can ask you if you, if you really are are ready for that challenge or maybe a better challenge would suit you. I think it's a very interesting perspective to look through. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? (sighs) Favorite tool? Well, that would have to, that would would have to be my MacBook. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Not the Pro, not the Air, MacBook, straight up. It is a Pro, but I, I used to love my Air, but now now they're all getting so small and thin that I'm not sure how much of a distinction there is anymore. I I I, I love, love the Air, but uh, right now I have a I have a, I have a Pro, but I don't know. They're they're pretty amazing. But if there's one tool I could definitely not live without, especially given what I do, uh, would definitely be my my MacBook. All right, and how about a favorite habit? Uh, favorite habit, uh, reading, man, that, that one's really paid off for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I highly, I highly recommend, I mean, I kind of like an athlete saying they like to exercise, but I mean, you know, for, for me, it, it's, uh, you know, it's something I love doing. And, uh, I often joke uh, or half joke that a lot of the work I do is, is just the exhaust. Uh, that comes out <laughs> of my natural habit of wanting to read, wanting to learn, and then it 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 that 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 machine, which is going to run anyway, uh, happens to uh, to produce this exhaust, which uh, which which luckily I've found some weird way to make a career out of. So uh, so my I'm very very grateful for that. Oh, beautiful. Well, we appreciate your exhaust. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I don't joke. Sorry, I'm destroying the environment. <laughs> And I'd also like to get your take. You know, you've shared a lot of things with a lot of people. Is there a particular nugget or quotable gem that is attributable to you or maybe just even reformulated, restated by you? You know, that really does seem to resonate with folks. They retweet it. They take notes upon it. And when you utter it, what's something that really seems to stick? 
that valedictorian study, and again, I, I didn't do the research, you know, uh, uh, really seems to, uh, to, to resonate, you know, with people and the self-compassion concept, you know, uh, really seems to, uh, to resonate with people. The, the, the idea of the idea of not blowing, of not having to lie, not having to brag, not having to blow yourself up, uh, you know, not having to be a jerk, but, but emphasizing forgiving yourself. Um, you know, I, I think of the, you know, that's a concept that has really resonated with people, especially, you know, lately is the, uh, the idea, you know, that, uh, that, that forgiving yourself is, is more important than, uh, blowing up your ego to insane proportions. Mm-hmm. And Eric, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Given that, as we established, uh, the URL is uh, hard to pronounce, hard to spell, uh, hard to not the best marketing choice on my part. Uh, happy to grant you that one um, is uh, if they want to uh, if they want to see my blog, uh, there's a new post every week, which goes a deep dive uh, on some evidence based way to improve your life. Uh, basically, Googling my name, uh, Eric Barker. Uh, that'll come up and signing up for my weekly email is the best way to, to keep up with what I'm doing. And the book, uh, is barking up the wrong tree. It's available on, you know, Amazon and, uh, any other, uh, any of the other major booksellers. Oh, cool. And Eric, do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would point to a piece of advice that, uh, that, uh, former Harvard researcher and, and now bestselling author, uh, Sean Aker, uh, told me, uh, that, uh, he had done research uh, that basically said when you go into uh, the office, first thing, uh, first thing you do, sit down and send an email thanking somebody, showing gratitude. That simply doing that, uh, you know, gives people a boost in happiness. And there's plenty of research uh, I've cited on the blog before that, that shows that how you start the day dramatically affects how the rest of the day goes. So uh, the challenge I would give people is, you know, First thing, uh, first thing in the office, send an email and send someone a sincere uh, thank you email. And uh, try that for a few days. See if it helps you out. Mm, awesome. Eric, this has been such a treat. Please keep generating the great things you produce. The exhaust has fragrance <laughs> and a lovely aroma. <laughs> and it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Pete. I really like Eric's take that indeed, if we do believe optimistically that things are going to go well, then we're more likely to persist even when things are tough. And the distinction is not so much, you know, lying to yourself, it's going to get better soon, but rather having that fundamental belief that it's going to work out and you're going to rise up and surpass the challenges and obstacles that do emerge. Very cool stuff. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links, the items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F298. And I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already so you can hear from folks like our very next guest. It is Pamela Skillings, who is talking about interviewing skills, how it is done. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 